Welcome to this podcast from Christchurch London. For more information and resources, please go to ChristchurchLondon.org. Good morning, Christchurch London Central Service. How are we today? Marvellous. Well, uh, as they said, start of a new series that will take us right the way up to the uh, carol services at Christmas. Three months today, Christmas Day, 91 days to go. Just saying, come on. And we are going to be looking at the life of Abraham in the book of Genesis. And in many ways, what this whole series is going to be about is the subject of faith. Abraham, after all, Romans 4.16, is called the father of faith. And the three major world religions, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, all look to Abraham as the model of faith. So we're going to be looking at faith from a whole load of different angles. And I want to start by asking one of the most basic questions of all, which is this. How on earth can I have faith in the first place? I mean, I believe in a God that I can't see. How do I have faith in him? And once I've got it, how do I deepen that faith? And I really hope this talk is accessible to you wherever you are at. If you don't have faith but want to find out more, if you do have faith but have loads of doubts, struggles, and questions, or if you've had faith for most of your life or anything in between, I think the principles that we're going to be looking at should apply to all of us. And I want to start by reading from the very beginning of the Abraham story. If you have a Bible, please turn to Genesis chapter 11. If you don't have one, don't worry, the words will be on the screen behind me. There we are, and we're going to read from verse 27. It says this. This is the account of Terah's family line. Terah became the father of Abram. Just to pause for a moment, if you weren't aware, Abraham begins his life called Abram. Don't let that confuse you. Abram basically means daddy. Abraham means big daddy. That's kind of where we're headed through this series, okay? <laughs> So, uh, Terah's the father of Big Daddy, Nahor, and Haran. Haran's the father of Lot. While Terah is still alive, Haran dies in Ur of the Chaldeans where he was born. Abram and Nahor both marry. Abram's wife is Sarai. Nahor's wife is Milcah. Verse 30, now Sarai was childless because she wasn't able to conceive. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, Abram's wife, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Chapter 12. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they'd accumulated and the people they'd acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morer at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he went on toward the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west, Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. So how do we have faith? And once we've got it, how do we deepen it? I want to suggest four principles that you can probably take in order that I think should apply to all of us. And the first is this. If we want to be men and women of faith, we need to think. We need to be thinkers. I was speaking in a different church a short while ago, and at the end of the talk, a girl came up to me and said, Andy, I've got big questions of faith right now. And my Christian friends are basically telling me, oh, don't worry about the questions. When it comes to faith, you just have to believe. What do you think? 
Well, after a long conversation, one of my conclusions was maybe you need to find some new friends. Friends who will allow you to wrestle through the questions that you have. You see, if you think faith is like blind belief, I can't see God, but somehow really hope he's there, that is not real faith. That is just guesswork. Real faith is based on evidence that you can examine. There is substance to it. Abraham, the big daddy of faith, he was a thinker. Romans chapter 4 and verse 19 says he faced the facts. Verse 21, same chapter, says he was fully persuaded. Hebrews 11.2 said he reasoned, he considered. Those are thinking words. The big daddy of faith was a thinker, and if we want to be people of faith, we need to be thinkers too. Uh, thanks to Brian Reagan for this illustration. In many ways... Being a person of faith is a bit like walking into a spider's web. If any of you have done that, you will know that you never feel more stupid than when you walk into a spider's web. Why? Because nobody else sees the spider's web apart from you. To everybody else, you're just perfectly normal, walking along, having a good day, and then suddenly, ah, get it off me, get it off me, kicking the air, flailing your arms around, and anyone nearby is like, whoa, did you see that guy flipping out over there? Whoa, what a freak. Darling, gather the children, let's move them away. That's what faith is like. Bear with me. You see, from a distance, it looks absolutely bonkers. We gather in this building every week. We sing to a wall. It seems like nobody is there. <laughs> Are we mad for doing so? It looks absolutely bonkers. But when you get up close and personal to the spider's web of evidence, as many of us have, you know we have encountered something, and it changes the way that you walk. That's a great illustration at the start of this series. I want to acknowledge that. So here's the $64 billion question. What's the spider's web of evidence that we need to examine? What did Abraham, the big daddy of faith, what did he think about? I want to suggest three things that we've looked at before. And the first is this, the splendor of creation. The very first thing that Abraham learns to call God apart from the Lord, chapter 14, is God most high, the creator of heaven and earth. Very first thing. On the screen behind me coming up is a short video of a time-lapse of the night sky. If you've lived in London all of your life, the things that are coming up shortly are called stars. You may not have seen them before. 400 billion plus stars in the Milky Way alone. That's just one of over 170 billion galaxies stretching across 13.8 billion light years. Just extraordinary. You know the chances of the universe just coming into being? It's around about 1 in 10 to the power of 60. To give you an idea of how unlikely that is, if I were to take a dice and roll it, the chances of me getting a 1 are 1 in 6. The chances of me getting two 1s in a row, well, they decrease exponentially. 1 in 6 times 1 in 6, that's now 1 in 36. 1 in 10 to the power of 60 is the equivalent of me rolling 70 ones in a row. To give you an idea of how unlikely that is, if you allow, say, five seconds per roll, statistically speaking, mathematically speaking, I would need to roll that dice for 100 trillion, 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 trillion years just for a chance of my numbers coming up. That's how unlikely creation happening is. No wonder the great atheist Richard Dawkins, brilliant mind, brilliant man, describes the splendor, the fine-tuning of creation as the biggest obstacle, the biggest challenge to a secular or more atheistic worldview. Now, of course, Abraham doesn't know any of that. He just steps out of his tent at night and is like, oh, wow, look at that. I love the way that Romans chapter 1 and verse 20 puts it. 
This is the message translation says this, but the basic reality of God is plain enough. Open your eyes, there it is. By taking a long and thoughtful look at what God has created, people have always been able to see what their eyes as such can't see, eternal power, for instance, and the mystery of his divine being. Have you taken a long and thoughtful look at creation? It's just amazing. Wow, God most high, creator of heaven and earth. I'm sure Abraham thought about that. Second thing, though, I think he thought about is what I might call his own life, the world around him, and the hopelessness of his situation. Bit of background to the Abraham story. The prelude to Abraham, the first 11 chapters of Genesis, are basically a story of God creating a perfect world and human beings messing it up. Dave will share more about this next week, so I won't elaborate much. But suffice to say, there are three big crisis points. The fall, Genesis 3, Noah and the flood, Genesis 7 to 9, and right before the Abraham story, Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. But amidst all of this mess, human beings ruining everything, there is always, always, always a strand of hope. And it is the line of Seth. On the screen behind me coming up is the genealogy of Seth, Adam and Eve's son, all the way down to Noah. And the next slide, Noah's sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth, all the way down to Terah, Big Daddy's father, who has three sons, Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now it's here in Genesis 11 we encounter a problem. You see, Haran, we are told, dies in Ur of the Chaldeans, the land of his birth. Joshua chapter 24 says Terah and Nahor both go over to idol worship. In fact, if you look at the meaning of their names, they were probably worshippers of the moon, amongst other things. That just leaves Abraham left. Now, many commentators think Abraham was probably also a worshipper of the moon. I am not so sure, personally. But even if he was a follower of of God, we're told in verse 30, Sarai, his wife, is barren. She can't have children. In other words, in the last place on earth where people believe in God, oh, it all ends here. It's like spiritually, emotionally, physically, the last little candle of hope has now flickered out. Theologian Walter Brueggemann puts it like this, the barrenness of Sarah is an effective metaphor for hopelessness. There is no foreseeable future and no human power to create a future. The human race and any hope for it is over and then God speaks. You know, I wonder if Abraham looked at the world, the 300 plus powerless gods the Canaanites worship, and the mess they've made of everything, the hopelessness of his own life and thought, is this all there is to life? There's got to be more to life than this. You ever asked that question? What's your life all about? What is life all about? The Bible sometimes describes that feeling as spiritual thirst. The more I've studied it and looked at psychology and the way that we are made and the mess in the world around me, the more I am convinced that the Christian worldview is the most plausible lens through which to view our world. Have you thought about that? In fact, the great philosopher, Immanuel Kant, who I don't think was a follower of Jesus, but he based his entire view of the divine on what he called the starry heaven above us and the moral law within us. He looked up there and he looked in here and he thought there's got to be more to life than this. I think Abraham thought about that. I think he thought about the splendor of creation. But there's one other thing, if we're to be men and women of faith, that we need to think about that's more important than the other two put together. And we can see it way more clearly than Abraham ever could. And of course, it is the person of Jesus Christ. A bit more background to Abraham's story. First 11 chapters of Genesis, we are told of five primal curses that come on creation. In fact, the curses are mentioned, you can see the verses on the screen behind me. Genesis 12 comes along, hopeless situation. 
God speaks, master plan to bless all of creation. And he mentions the word blessing five times. It's like everything that humanity has messed up, God is one day going to make right. And there are seven different promises given to Abraham. They're coming up on the screen, land, multiplication into nationhood, all the way through to personal blessing. Seven is very symbolic in the Bible, often a sign of completeness, wholeness, shalom. The world was perfect, created in seven days. It's like shalom, wholeness is going to come to all of humanity, all of creation, through this one man, through this master plan. This is exciting stuff. However, for each and every one of these promises to come true, one thing has to happen first. Chapter 12 and verse 7, there needs to be an offspring. None of it can happen without that. You're going to be the father of a great nation. Amazing. First, he needs an offspring. You're going to be the father of many nations. Wonderful. First, he needs an offspring. Same for each and every one of the promises. And as we look at this story through New Testament eyes, particularly the book of Galatians chapter 3 is helpful on this. We are told that the offspring that we are all waiting for is not Isaac. No, it's the descendant of Abraham, Jesus Christ. It's through him that all of humanity is going to be changed and blessed and the world is going to be put right. Have you thought about him? Have you thought about him? If you've never considered him, go on the Alpha course week after this. South London, Stockwell, Kennington, Tuesday. Covent Garden, Central London, Tuesday. East London, Bethnal Green a week on Thursday. Give over a few evenings to investigate the most influential person who's ever lived. Think about his life. And if you've been a follower of Jesus, a person of faith for many decades, look again. There's always more. Study his life. And I think one of the most significant reasons that people do not start on a faith journey, have problems or struggles in their faith, or don't deepen their faith after many years, is we don't give it the time that it's due. But I tweeted something this morning, brilliant article that I read this week, where the author thinks perhaps the biggest challenge to faith in this nation is not actually what he describes as hedonism. Maybe it's distraction. Life is so busy. We don't give time to think. And I think this is particularly prevalent in this city. Shared this a few years ago. But when I first arrived in London, I was shocked by how bonkers the pace of life is here. I remember I just started work for the BBC at the time. I'm at the bottom of the escalator at Bond Street Station. This guy in a suit barges me out the way, sprints onto the platform, just as the beep, 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 beep of the doors closes and he misses the tube and boy is he mad. He slams his bag on the floor, he kicks the air in frustration. I wandered onto the platform, the next tube was just three minutes away. And I looked at this guy with a mixture of pride and pity and thought to myself, what on earth is going on in your life whereby the loss of those three minutes matters so much? I'm really sorry I shouldn't have judged. Six months later, I became that man. <laughs> I realized I had a problem after a morning shift. I'd just done a press conference, and I'm walking to my car over these few grassy fields. I can see it in the distance, carrying my bags of equipment over my shoulders, microphone and stuff. You can see to my left, about 10 yards away, a little in front of me, is this blonde-haired stranger. I've not seen him before. This thought comes into my head. I don't know where from. You can beat him. You can get to your car before he gets to his car. Without even thinking, I sped up 20, 30 feet later, I'm in the lead. I'm closer to my car than he is to his. And I'm trying to think about other stuff. To be honest, all that's going on inside is, I'm a winner. Check me out. Well, 20 or 30 feet later, I look out the corner of my eye. This blonde head chap has not only caught me up, he's now ahead of me. He's closer to his car than I am to his. Every competitive bone in my body starts reacting. I'm like, I can't have this. I speed up even more. 30 feet later, I'm back in the lead again. I'm a winner all over again. Well, as our cars are coming into view, 
30 feet later, I look out the corner of my eye. This blonde-haired chap has now caught me up, and now he's in the lead. And now we're both walking like something shoved up our trousers at this point. Well, I'm only thinking of one thing now. At this point, I just start running. As I look to my left, this blonde-haired stranger, he starts running too. I am having a race with a man that I have never met to a finish line that does not exist. In the end, we just both started laughing. Turned out his name was Ed. He worked for Sky TV at the time. Want to point out that I beat him as well. Thank you very much. <laughs> but I got into my car. I put my head in my hands. And I was like, I have a problem. That is what this city does to you. And I think the number one reason why so many of us don't deepen our faith, don't embark on a journey of faith, struggle in our faith, is we don't take time to think, to read, to study the Bible, to pray, to meditate, to reflect, to walk amongst the splendor of creation, to talk with others. How are you doing in that regard? Does your diary reflect how important this stuff is? If we want to be men and women of faith, we've got to be thinkers. We've got to be thinkers. Principle number one. Principle number two, if we want to be men and women of faith, is this. We need to take it step by step by step by step. You know, one of the things that strikes me about Abraham is there is never a single moment where he like, gets a complete download of revelation from heaven. It's not like God speaks in chapter 12, oh, I have faith now, I can live the rest of my life. No, no, his journey is very different. God says in chapter 12, go to the land that I will show you. Where? I'll show you later. I'm going to give you an offspring, verse 7. When? I'll show you later. Faith is just like that. Abraham's journey is just like that. In fact, his whole life is a su succession of moments with God, and at each moment, God reveals a little more of himself. Chapter 14, we've already heard that. He learns to call God, God Most High, the creator of heaven and earth. Chapter 15, verse 2, he discovers the name Adonai Yahweh, Sovereign Lord. 17.1, it's El Shaddai, God Almighty. 21.33, he learns to call God Eternal God, El Olam. 22.14, it's Yahweh Yireh, the Lord who provides, and so on and so forth. Step after step after step, deeper, richer, and it's exactly the same with Jesus. Jesus didn't arrive on the earth a couple of thousand years ago and preach a sermon and say, learn that, then you'll have faith. No, he said, come follow me. And just as in any relationship, when you give it more time, when you walk with somebody step by step by step, so the relationship goes deeper, it is exactly the same with faith. What's the next step for you? And of course what this means is this, if there's always another step to take, it means nobody but nobody but nobody, not even the big daddy of faith, has got everything figured out. None of us. I was very amused by a Charlie Brown cartoon I saw recently, where Charlie is walking past Lucy in the psychology booth, and she says, Life, Charlie Brown! He's like a deck chair on the great cruise ship of life. Some people put their deck chair at the front to see where they're going. Others put their deck chair at the back to see where they've been on the great cruise ship of life. Where is your deck chair placed? Charlie's like, I can't even get one unfolded. I mean, isn't that all of us? Certainly me. Still trying to work out how this life thing works. I've got thousands upon thousands of unanswered questions, but God always leads me the next step. What's the next step for you? You know, it is a wonder and a joy and hilarious fun watching my kids, five, three, and one, take their first steps of faith. <laughs> a short while ago, my parents came to stay. And uh, I cooked a nice meal. We were all sitting down to dinner. I thought, this is a chance for me to show off to grandma and granddad. So I said to my kids, I said, Brody Mia, why don't you lead us in prayer before we eat? You know, like daddy does. They're like, yeah, great idea. We'll pray. So we all close our eyes, bow our heads. And my little boy, five years old, he starts, he says, Dear God, he says, I want to pray for the moon, and thank you so much 
for making Halloween, amen. I'm like, no, no. <laughs> Mom, dad, I've not taught them that. <laughs> They've learned that from the other kids at church and their messed up parents. That's not from me. <laughs> at this point, I'm like, tell you what, Mia, don't you worry about praying. We'll just eat now. She's like, no, I want to pray. He prays. I'm like, please don't pray. Please don't pray. No, I am praying. Well, at this point, I'm starting to pray inside. So we close our eyes and bow our heads again. And she says this, dear God, she says, dear God, please give Brody a tail. <laughs> please, please give Brody a tail and don't ever come in when I'm on the toilet. Amen. <laughs> if, if you've ever met my three-year-old, you know, God's like, you know what? Okay. <laughs> I might be omnipresent. I will withdraw it from your bath. You do what you need to do, sweetheart. But you know what? I think they're like God's favorite prayers. Because they're so broken and messy, but so raw and real and honest. I bet God like rolls his eyes. Oh no, here comes another Liam Thatcher theologically correct prayer. Whoopie-doo. <laughs> if we had a few more like that, that'd make Sundays more fun, wouldn't it? I mean, just imagine we're worshipping. How great is our God. Check me out, Rich. Sing with me. How great is our God. Father, we want to pray now that you would give Dave Stroud a tail in the name of Jesus. <laughs> We'd remember a Sunday like that, wouldn't we? <laughs> and you know what the crazy thing is? A few weeks after that prayer, it turned out to be roll dial day at school. <laughs> and my little boy was desperate to be fantastic Mr. Fox. So guess what I had to go and spend my hard-earned money on? His own tail. <laughs> and I was just writing this talk, he's jumping past me with this tail all over the house. I'm like, is that God's answer to a bonkers three-year-old's prayer? <laughs> I don't know, but it sure sounds like him. My kids are on the same journey of faith that we all are. Broken, stumbling, faltering. But there's always a next step. What's the next step for you? And the point is this, you won't grow in faith if you don't take a step. How do you discover the power of prayer? You've got to give it a real go. Not just a one-liner, give it a real go. How do you discover God as Yahweh Yireh, the Lord who provides? You've got to take a step, a risk, when it comes to generosity and giving. How do you discover God is an even bigger provider than you could possibly imagine? You've got to take an even bigger step in the area of giving. How do you discover God to be a strength and a shield in times of trouble? You've got to get out of your comfort zone and stop playing it safe. How do you discover God to be an even bigger strength and shield in times of trouble? You've got to take an even bigger step out of your comfort zone. My entire journey of faith has been like that. It's like the steps of faith get bigger, but oh, the joy the other side is so much greater. What's the next step for you? What's the next step? Do you need to give prayer a go? Or is it time to take a big risk? What's the next step? Maybe it's time to pray for a tail. Just start somewhere. We need to carve out time and think, but oh, we need to take it step by step. And therefore, principle three is this. We must never settle. We must never, ever stop taking step after step after step. Because it's at that point that your faith grows stale and stagnant and it withers and dies. You know, one of the big questions I've got about faith, particularly the Christian faith, is why is it so tough? God is so wonderful and brings such peace and joy and freedom. Why is it so hard sometimes? I mean, that's Abraham's journey. God comes to him, chapter 12, blessing is coming your way. The earth is going to feel the impact of it. Verse 6, next thing we're told, there are Canaanites in the land. You told me you'd give me the land, now there's battles to fight. And verse 10 of the same chapter, famine comes on the land. 
You told me you were going to bless me. Famine, battles. That's not what I signed up for. Why is it like that for so many of us? Here is one of the reasons. I think it's a big reason, but not the only one. Because God knows our propensity to settle for too little when everything is comfortable and secure. I mean, that's the history of faith in the Western world. It withers most, not in times of trouble, but in times of prosperity and comfort. I find God's assessment of the Israelites very illuminating in the book of Hosea. He comments on why they keep wandering away from him, why faith keeps dying. He says this, when I fed them, they were satisfied. When they were satisfied, they became proud. Then they forgot me. I still do that now. Day comes and goes, and I thought, I won't bother praying today. I won't bother reading the Bible. No more steps today. Let's just watch TV. It's much more fun. And you know what? Life's great. Life's really great. Don't notice the difference. Another day goes by. Let's do it again. Yesterday was great. I didn't pray. I read the Bible. Let's not do it again. Oh, another great day. A bit like Usain Bolt. If he didn't go for a run today, if he didn't work out, would anyone notice? Probably not. Maybe not even him. But when you repeat that day in, day out, fed, satisfied, proud, faith just withers and dies. The end of that journey for me, when I've been through protracted seasons of like, let's just leave the faith thing to one side, it's been a very thirsty and dissatisfied soul. That's what happens to Abraham. We're told he gets this call in Ur of the Chaldeans and off he sets with his dad Terah and his brother Nahor. Maps coming up, they go to Haran and they settle there. Haran would have certainly been a place of real prosperity. We know that probably because it's a really significant commercial crossroads. You can get down to Babylon, to Nineveh, to what's now known as Damascus. But we know it's a prosperous place because we're told of all the possessions and servants they accumulate there in chapter 12. It's like they get to Haran. It's like, oh, this is nice. Let's just settle down and get comfy. And at least Tirah and Nahor end up going over to idol worship. Fed, satisfied, proud, forget God. And they start worshipping the moon and going after created things rather than the creator of all. And the last little candle of hope, it's gone. Faith gone. That's a risk we all take. Listening to a talk by Tim Keller recently, he leads a brilliant church in New York, been there for many decades, made a real impact in the city, a real model and inspiration for us here in London. And he said something recently that really caught my attention. He said, over the years, I've known many, many people move away from New York. And often I will bump into them many years later, and many of them will confide in me this. They'll say things like, you know, when I used to live in New York, I had less space to live in than I've ever had. I had less free time. Life was lived at 110 miles an hour each and every day. I had less disposable income. Felt like I was permanently poor, but I never felt more used by God. Never felt like I was more in a place where my life could make a difference and impact people's lives. Never felt more like I was on the front line of ministry. And now, and now, and now they'll confide. I've got more space to live in. I've got more free time. I've got more disposable income. But my faith doesn't feel so vital. It is so tragic when that happens. And it can happen here in London too. I know because it sometimes happens in me. And I have seen it happen in my friends. And just to be clear, this isn't about where you live. You can live a spiritually radical lifestyle in suburbia and the countryside, and you can live a complacent, comfortable life in the city. We know that, because that's what happened to Tirar and Nahor. They get to Haran, and it's prosperous, and faith goes. This is about what's going on in the heart. Are you making decisions based on what's easiest and where it's most comfortable? There is more for you than a comfortable life. I've shared this before. 
a few years ago. I don't apologize for repeating it because it's one of my most significant faith stories. When I went through my teenage years, I was very badly bullied. And I got to 18 years old, and I honestly felt like I didn't have a friend in the world. Oh. Went off to uni, and it was just like God answered all of my prayers. Made some of the best friends I'll ever have. The community that I had longed for, God just answered every prayer. And towards the end of my first year, the Christian Union came to me and said, Andy, we would love you to stay in halls for a second year. Don't move out with your friends. Let them move out, and you just stay in halls to look after any new Christians that come in that will want community. That felt like a big ask. Felt like I was laying down the friends that I would just longed for for so long for a bunch of strangers that I did not know. Bit of wrestling, I prayed about it, I thought this is the right thing to do, so I stayed. And I should have seen it coming, but it did not go well. There weren't many people of faith coming in. Most people did not really have faith. And uh, they weren't really open to a second year who'd stayed in simply because the Christian Union had asked him. I can look back and see it now. You know, fresh as wheat when you're getting to know each other. Who are you? Why are you here? Hi, I'm Andy. I'm here because I'm a Christian. Doesn't play well, does it? <laughs> and it wasn't that they were just disinterested in faith. They were downright hostile. They were rude to my face. I would often hear them being rude about me behind my back. They would ostracize me. They were unpleasant. I remember one girl, a little French girl called Alice. She said, I hate you. I hate your God. I want nothing to do with you. And it brought back all these memories from my teenagers. I remember before the days of mobile phones, that's how old I am, this little phone booth in the middle of halls. And I'm trying to cover my eyes so no one can see the tears rolling down my face. Talking to my mum, I'm like, have I just made the biggest mistake of my life? And I was ready to quit. I'm like, I don't need this. Not uni, but I'm moving out of here. I'll sleep on somebody's floor to get away. It's just horrible. And I remember one evening, I was just pouring my heart out to God in my room. I'm just weeping and praying and like, God, where are you? Why is it so tough? And I had what can only be described as a profound God moment. And I remembered the words of Jesus that it's those who lose their life that find it. And those who die to self who gain a harvest. And one of the fruits of that moment was like, you know what? I don't want to settle for what's most comfy. And to run away when things get tough. And I went to my diary. I set aside an hour a day at least just to pray, God, would you bless these people? And I thought, however nasty they are to me, I'm going to be the most loving person I can. When they went through relationship breakups, I'm there to listen. When they are sick, I'm going to be there with food and drink to look after them. Remember one evening, one guy was going out clubbing for the night. He hadn't got a clean shirt to wear. I said, you can not only borrow my shirt, you can keep it. It was a nice shirt. And he hadn't got a box to put that kind of love in. Well, I'm nasty to you and you're nice back. Tell you what, prayer and love, it just changed everything. I knew there was a change in the atmosphere when I came back from lectures one day. I opened my door. There's bits of paper all over the floor. I'm like, what's this? Pick them up. I had no idea I was praying. They're now putting prayer requests under my door saying, would you pray for me? Two girls knocked on my door. They said, um, and they've been particularly nasty. They said, Andy, we've, I know what we said. We've just been talking. We've had this strange feeling. We'd like to start going to church. Would you take us? This guy, John, three doors up, came around my room. He said, Andy, um, I was just in the city. He'd seen an event on at the church I was going to, this scientist, Christian, debating faith and science. He said, would you take me? I said, I'd love to. A few people came around and said, we know you've got faith. A few of us have been talking with our corridor and our other corridors. We think, oh, there might be something in the whole God and faith stuff. Would you put on a whole evening where we can talk about God and faith and Jesus and the meaning of life? Crowds started to come. Remember the, the most moving moment of the whole journey was that little girl, Alice, French girl, who said, I hate you, I hate your God. She knocked on my door one morning. She said, Andy, I've just had a dream. I saw Jesus on the cross. I want to become a Christian. What do I do? I have to confess on the outside, I was like, that's wonderful. Let's talk. 
On the inside, I was like, wah, 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 wah. (laughs) I'm a Christian, you can't do those things. So I was nice. It changed my life. And the point is this. If I had settled for what was most comfortable, I'd have missed it. I've now got so many stories like that. Remember when I moved to London? Had no job, virtually no money. I had relatives and friends saying, you are mad, don't do it. I'm like, I don't want to settle for an easy life. Loaded my Toyota Corolla Charisma with every possession that I owned. As I crossed the threshold of the M25, got a call on my phone. Andy, it's the BBC. We've just heard you're moving to London. Do you want a job? You know, my most profound reflection on the last 25 years, 30 years of following Jesus, it would be this. If I want the resurrection power that the New Testament says is available to followers of Jesus, I do not get it unless I go through personal crucifixion first. You do not get the joy and the life of Resurrection Sunday without the pain and the cost of Crucifixion Friday. It really is true. Those who lose their life find it. Those who die to self gain a harvest. I imagine around this room right now, pretty much every single person is facing some kind of challenge in your life. Do not settle for what's most comfortable. There is more for you than a comfortable, easy life. It might be tough, but I tell you what, it's going to be the most amazing adventure you ever got caught up on. You know, I'm struck by the life of Abraham. Everything he lays down. Everything he lays down, he gets that back and more besides. He leaves behind a family. God says, I'm going to give you a family. Boy, what a big family. He leaves behind a land. God says, I'm going to give you a land, so much so the earth will feel the impact of it. He leaves behind an inheritance. He would have literally forfeited an inheritance, saying goodbye to his father's household. God says, I'm going to give you an inheritance. That's what the Christian faith is like. Oh, it's tough at times. But don't settle. Never, ever settle. There is more for you than that. Be a thinker. Carve out time. Prioritize your diary. Study, read, pray, reflect, step by step. Pray for a tale, take a risk, do some more praying, whatever it is for you. Never, ever, ever settle. There's so much more, so much more. And the fourth and final principle is this, get out of the house. Get out of the house. Faith isn't meant to be a private thing in here. It's meant to make a difference out there. That's the whole point. I'm a big fan of a guy called Dr. Henry Cloud. He's a Christian psychologist in the States. And I was listening to him recently uh, over the summer. He was talking about uh, principles for dating relationships. Uh, not something from personal application, I hasten to add. We were doing like a relationship series at the time. I wanted to do some research. And he was doing this radio phone-in, and he's talking about ways to do dating well. And this woman calls in, and she is mad. She's like, Dr. Cloud, I cannot believe you're telling me about things I need to do to do dating well. I've just got faith. God's going to bring me a man. Dr. Cloud is like, Okay, that's commendable. Do you think you need to do anything? She's like, no, whether I do anything or not. Little faith as small as a mustard seed, that can move mighty mountains. I've got mustard seed faith. God can move mighty mountains. He loves me, wants to bless me. I've got faith. God's going to bring me a man. Dr. Cloud is like, do you even need to get out of the house? She's like, whether I get out of the house or stay in the house, I trust God. I've got faith in God. He's going to bless me. God's going to bring me a man. Dr. Cloud finishes by saying, look, I hate to disagree, but this is for your own good. Unless you want to marry the postman or a Jehovah's Witness, you've got to get out of the house, okay? Boop, she hangs up. Now we laugh because we know that's true. That faith isn't about private belief and summoning enough positive emotions in here. 
We've got to start living it out. There's a wonderful little comparison in Genesis 12 where it says of Abraham that he pitched tents, but he built altars. I love that. My tents full of all my belongings, all my stuff, all my possessions, oh, that'll just come and go. But I'm going to live my life to build like permanent memorials to the fact that one day God is going to come back and just change and bless everything. That's how we are to live. Love it reading this passage through the lens of Galatians 3. Verse 7 basically says this, if you're a person of faith, you are a child of Abraham. You're following Jesus today, you're Abraham's child. And therefore, verses 7 to 14, through Jesus Christ, all the promises, all the inheritance that was promised to Abraham, we now have that promise. We now get that inheritance. We now get that blessing. In other words, God's master plan is not to bless the world through Abraham, it's to bless the world through you and me. Isn't that amazing? That's why we talk about things like compassion. Feeding the hungry, standing up for mercy and justice, befriending the lonely, being outstanding employees for our boss, serving and being gracious to those we're working alongside, comforting those who are bereaved, doing good in our communities. This is why we do this. This is what church is all about. Not for in here, not for our temporary tents of comfort, but to make a difference out there. We pitch tents, but oh, we build altars. And through the course of this series on faith, we're going to hear a whole load of different ways about how we want to build altars out there. Just metaphors for how we want the world to be different because the church is here. This is why we're here. That your world can be different because God's promise to Abraham is now our promise. He's going to bless the world through us. It's amazing. But I don't want to finish there. I don't want to finish by focusing on all the things we have to do to bless the world out there. We'll get to that. But Galatians 3 says there's one particular blessing that we kind of inherit through Jesus Christ. That is the fuel to make transformation out there possible. And it's the gift of the Holy Spirit. Galatians 3.14. And I don't want to finish this talk by focusing on all the things that we have to do. But instead by focusing on what has already been done. God's given us the Holy Spirit. And let us start this term and this academic year as we mean to go on getting full of him and his power refueled, refilled, that we might make a difference out there. Just one little story that kind of illustrates this. It's from a guy called Tony Campolo. I love some of his stories. I think perhaps I love him because every passing year my hairstyle seems to resemble his more and more and more. And uh, he tells his story. He was preaching in another church. And before the church, a bit weird, the leaders took him into a back room, got him to kneel, and they all put their hands on his bald head and prayed for him before he spoke. He said, boy, oh boy, did the prayers go on. It was so boring. They started going off on random tangents. Weren't even praying for him. This one guy says, God, I want to pray for my friend Charlie Stoltzfus. You know, the guy who lives half a mile down the road, silver trailer left-hand side, at which point Tony Campolo bursts out laughing. He's like, do you think God's there? Just run me through that again. Left-hand side, silver trailer, he said. Is that right? He says, God, Charlie told me this morning that he was going to leave his wife and three kids. Bring that family back, back together, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. And so the prayers go on and on and on. It went on for an age. Well, church happens, Tony preaches, church finishes, gets in the car to go home, sees a hitchhiker on the side of the road, thinks, oh, what the heck, I'll pick him up. And he gets, hi, I'm Tony Campolo, what's your name? This guy says, hi, I'm Charlie Stoltzfus. Well, on the, in, on the outside, Charlie plays it really, really cool and a little bit creepy. On the inside, his chin drops to the floor. He locks the doors to the car, swerves the car around, starts speeding back towards the church. This guy's like, where are you taking me? Tony says, 
I'm taking you home. <laughs> He's like, why? Why? Starts fingering for the handle, door won't open. He says, because this morning you left your wife and three kids. He's like, yes, yes, I did. I left my wife and three kids. At which point, the silver trailer, half a mile left-hand side, comes into view. He swerves up to it. This guy's, how did you know? How did you know? Tony's like, God told me. <laughs> Unlocks the car. Charlie Stoltzfus runs in, talks to his wife. Her eyes go bigger and bigger and bigger. Tony storms in. He says, you guys sit down. I'm going to speak. You're going to listen. He says, boy, oh boy, did they listen. The end of that conversation was not only did that family come back together, three little children got their daddy back, but that family went on the most amazing faith adventure. Charlie Stoltzfus is apparently now some kind of preacher or leader in a church in the southern part of the US. And when I hear stories like that, oh, don't you just long for it in your own life? Don't you long for it in this church? Where the focus is not, oh, look at amazing Christchurch London and all they've done, but like only God could have done that. Wouldn't it be amazing if those stories got written into our DNA as a community? Oh, that's what I long for. We need the gift and the blessing of the Holy Spirit again and again and again. And wherever you are at, oh, there's always more. So in a few moments' time, I'm going to pray an ancient prayer. Holy Spirit, come. And if you want to get full of the Holy Spirit, I want to encourage you to come to the front and get prayer. Maybe you know what the next step is and it's just a really hard one to take. Maybe you don't know what the next step is and you need guidance. Maybe life is really tough for you right now and you are in danger of settling or making a decision based on what is most easy. Oh, there's more for you than that. We'd love to pray for you. And hey, when we pray for you, chances are you might think nothing much happens. But just like with Tony Campolo, through long, waffly, boring prayers, God can do amazing things. Do you long for that? Why don't we all stand? Maybe the band want to come up. Let me just pray for us very simply. You might want to get into your receiving from God position, whatever that is. Just in your heart, like, what do you want him to do for you? You feel in what the Bible might call spiritual thirst. There's always more. What is it for you? What's the next step? Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, come. Now let's just wait. Welcome your presence, Holy Spirit. Whether we feel it or not, we know you're here because you love us. And you love it when we ask for more of you. So we ask more of your presence. You see into every life here, every heart, whatever we need. Would you fill us? Would you re-envision us? Would you strengthen us? May we never settle for too little. Holy Spirit, come. We don't want the easiest path. We don't want the most comfortable existence. We want to go on an adventure with you. Holy Spirit, come. Now we're going to sing a closing song in a moment. Just continue to do business with God in your heart. Then I'm going to come up. I'm going to invite you forward. And just say the reason that I do that is sometimes doing things on the outside helps what's going on on the inside. 
Maybe this is the next step for you. Give you a few moments to think about that. Let's just worship Jesus for a moment and I'll close our time together. Thank you for listening. For more information or for further podcasts and downloads, please visit ChristChurchLondon.org.